0: All right, we said last night that we're talking about questions to diagnose your spiritual health. These are qualitative questions, again, not quantitative. It's not, are you doing this more or that more? Uh, That can end up being like the Pharisees. Now, quite often, spiritual growth will reflect more time in the Word of God, but simply more time in the Word of God alone is not by itself an indication of spiritual growth. It's the impact of it. So we're, we're asking these questions qualitatively, not quantitatively. And the question in this hour is, do you still grieve over sin? <clears throat> Back to Jonathan Edwards, if you weren't here last night, Edwards lived in the first half of the 1700s, pastored in Northampton, Massachusetts, considered by many the greatest mind America's ever produced, certainly our greatest native theologian and preached the most famous sermon in American history and was the key, one of the key figures in the great, first Great Awakening. In 1725, the year before he settled in Northampton where he would spend the le- next uh, 25 years, uh, he went there to help his grandfather pastor the church. Young Jonathan Edwards wrote, I have had a vastly greater sense of my own wickedness And the badness of my heart than ever I had before my conversion. It has often appeared to me that if God should mark iniquity against me, I should appear the very worst of all mankind, of all that have been since the day, since the beginning of the world to this time, and that I should have by far the lowest place in hell. My wickedness as I am in myself, has long appeared to me to be perfectly ineffable. What does ineffable mean? Ineffable means there's, there's no words to describe it. You'll see the word frequently in a lot of Puritan works and older works. Ineffable means it's, it's indescribable. My wickedness, as I am in myself, has long appeared to me perfectly ineffable. And swallowing up all thought and imagination like an infinite deluge or mountains over my head. I know not how better to express. This is one of the most famous lines in all of the 77 volumes of whatever Edwards works. I have, I know not how to express better what my sins appear to me to be than by heaping infinite upon infinite and multiplying infinite by infinite. Very often. For these many years, these expressions are in my mind and in my mouth infinite upon infinite, infinite upon infinite. When I look into my heart and take a view of my wickedness, it looks like an abyss infinitely deeper than hell. Is this normal, healthy Christianity? Or is this obsessive, unnecessary, groveling before God? Well, I believe that Edwards' words of grief over his sin not only indicates he was growing in grace, but that all growing Christians often feel the way Edwards did. Here's what I mean. Let's talk about when to grieve is to grow. And to grieve is to grow. The, the closer you get to Christ, the more Christ-like you are, not only in actions but in thoughts. You increasingly love what he loves and increasingly hate what he hates. And because Jesus hates sin, the more like him you grow, the more you grow to hate sin. And the more you hate sin, the more you will grieve when you become aware of the sin in your life, the more you grieve over the presence in your life of that which killed Jesus. Now perhaps the world has never seen, even Edwards, the world has never seen someone closer to Christ than the Apostle Paul. And in the final years of his life, though he had grown into, we say as a universally recognized symbol of, of Christ's likeness. A man who had audibly heard the Lord Jesus himself. A man who had seen miracles come through his hands. Who was given, as Second Corinthians tells us, a glimpse of heaven, taken to heaven, and got to see that in advance. Paul wrote in one of his final letters, 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. All right? He's been to heaven He's heard Jesus, he's seen Jesus, risen, and he says, I am the chief of sinners. And I believed, I, I believe he thought this sincerely. He didn't say it coldly or just for, uh, just for illustration's sake. I believe he meant every word of it with, with a, a, a chest-beating sincerity. I am the chief of sinners. Of all the sinners ever, and everyone that's ever been born is a sinner. I am the worst one. I once heard seminary professor John Hanna say, "The closer one comes to Christ, in one sense, the more miserably he becomes." <laughs> How can that be? It's because the, as we said last night, the Holy Spirit gives you a love for holiness and a desire for holiness. And he gives you an affinity for anything that will help you enjoy a holy God more. That's why you love the Word of God more. And you're, uh, you have an affinity for the spiritual disciplines. Because they help you experience God more. They help you, you know, taste and see that the Lord is good. So you have an inclination and an affinity for these disciplines we've talked about. And so you, the Holy Spirit, had a question here earlier, gives us more of a thirst for God. And yet, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit makes you more aware of that which is unholy within you. As you long for a holy Christ, you're, you're more and more aware of what's not holy within you. And so it's like putting on, you know, a, you, you look at a, a white shirt in the closet and you say, yeah, this, this is clean, this looks good. And you, then, then you get out in the sunlight and you realize, oh my goodness, It's filthy. <laughs> in in the relative light of the closet it looked okay in the bright sunlight you realized it was filthy and in our relative righteousness to one another we look okay but the closer we get to the white light of the pure holiness of God the more sinful we see ourselves to be And it makes us miserable. The Holy Spirit's presence, which gives us the love for holiness and a longing for more holiness, also causes us to grieve for that which is unholy within us. And sometimes we just want to rip the sin blackened heart out of our chest and heave it from us as far as we can, right? And I believe that's the work of the Holy Spirit that that causes that. But the fact that there is a struggle with sin like that, that is good news in one sense be encouraged by that awareness and by that desire because unbelievers generally have no struggles or griefs like that for sin. They may be disappointed in themselves. Well, I didn't live up to my own expectations. I didn't live up to my family's expectations or whatever, but they don't agonize over being unholy before God. They don't agonize over being unholy toward a God who calls them to holiness. I love what A.W. Pink explained here, he said, It is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it, which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors of faith. So there are people who profess faith in Christ. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I believe in God. I believe I'm going to heaven. I'm a Christian. And yes, I'm not perfect. There's sin in my life. Paul says, but but Pink says here, what distinguishes that person from the real Christian is the real Christian grieves over that. So it's not the absence of sin that is evidence that you're a Christian. It's grieving over the presence of sin that distinguishes a real Christian from those who think they are and they're not. So are you aware today of sins in your life that you weren't, say, three years ago? that you didn't even realize three years ago that this attitude, this activity, this mindset was sinful. Well, that's a mark of growth. The increased sensitivity to sin is a mark of growth. You've made spiritual progress from where you were three years ago. The closer you get to Christ, the more aware of that which is in you, unlike Christ. And so if you're aware, oh my goodness, I have been this way all my life and I just wasn't even aware how sinful it was. It's good. It's growth. It's healthy spiritually. One writer said, Our sense of sin is in proportion to our nearness of God. The nearer you are to God, the greater the sinner you believe yourself to be. Like Paul, I am the chief of sinners. And you say... But how could he really believe that? Here's why. Because Paul would say, look, for starters, even before I was a Christian, I was given the benefit of the word of God. And I I had a, a PhD in theology in my day. I knew the word of God better than just about anyone on the planet. And I had all the benefits of the sacrifices and all the things that were given to our people that most people in the world didn't experience. And I knew all of that, knew it well. And yet... I put Christians to death. I I stood by and approved the, the stoning of Stephen. I was on my way to persecute Christians when I became a Christian. And even after that, as much as God has blessed me, Jesus himself has appeared to me. Angels have appeared to me. Miracles have come coursing through my very hands Many people have been converted when I have preached. I have been enabled to go to heaven and glimpse heaven before death. Blessings no one has ever had before. And after all of this, you know what I do every day? I still sin. How is it possible? God has favored me so much, and yet every day I sin. Anyone who sins after all of this has to be the worst sinner in the world. That's what Paul was thinking. Jonathan Edwards could say, one of the holiest men ever, my sins are infinite, upon infinite. And you take all of that and multiply it by infinite. How could he think that? How could he say that? Is he just being, you know, the deeply philosophical man that he was? No. Edwards realized we never go one second without sin. May not even be conscious of it. But every word, every deed, every thought, every motive is affected to some degree with sin. Someone put it this way, if sin were blue... Everything you ever said, every thought, every motive, every deed would be some shade of blue. Some would be a dark shade of blue. Some would be a lighter shade of blue, but it would all be affected by sin to some degree. By the way, if you don't believe that, and I'll tell you where that leads is, is the possibility of sinless perfection. If you can go one, and the old argument is, if you can, can you go one second without sin? And a lot of people say, well, yes, I guess so. Well, if you can go one, you can go two, can't you? Well, I guess so. Well, if you can go two, you can go ten, can't you? Well, yeah, by extension, yeah. If you can go 10 seconds without sin, you can go a minute without sin, can't you? And, you know, you lead to a lifetime of what's called sinless perfection, which the Bible condemns. The the presumption, though, from the beginning is wrong. We can't go one second without sin. Not even aware of it, perhaps, but when the fall happened in Genesis chapter 3, every part of us was affected. Some want to say, yes, every part of us except our ability to choose. Somehow, objectively, that, you know, our ability to choose is unaffected. No, every part of us was affected by sin. So that we can't think of anything perfectly righteously. We can't think of anything perfectly, purely, and objectively. Every part of us is affected by sin so that even in our best moments there is sin. Even though we're not aware of it, when in your most self-sacrificing moments, you get up in the middle of the night to care for a sick child. You pull over on the side of the road to help some stranger. Even in our best moments like that, there's some degree of selfishness. It may be nothing more than, well, I hope my wife appreciates this or husband appreciates this. I hope someone sees me do this. Or it may be nothing more than, well, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do it. So there's some self-interest even in our besties, What does the Bible say? Even our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags, right? We know our sins are as filthy rags. The Bible says even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags compared to a holy God. Compared to others, I may be more righteous than you because I do more righteousnesses than you do. But compared to God, it's all filthy rags. In terms of impressing God, impressing God enough to open up the door of heaven, in those times when we say, "This is righteousness and this is unrighteousness and I choose, I, I choose righteousness. Good. It's what you ought to do. And in some sense, God's pleased with that. But even in that righteousness, the Bible says, it's not perfectly righteous. It's not perfect. So there even our righteousnesses have enough sin in them to condemn us before God. If I'd never sinned in my life before speaking. This hour, If I never sinned again after speaking this hour, there's enough sin in my teaching in this hour to send me to hell forever. And therefore Edwards could say every moment of my life, even when I do righteousness, I'm only increasing my guilt before God. And when I realize, oh, I, I did unrighteousness here, when I try to make up for it, I do so with bloody hands. Someone said, "Even our repentance needs to be repented of. Repented of. Even our tears need to be washed." So my sins are infinite, upon infinite. So because every moment of my life, I'm only increasing my guilt before God. And what is the greatest of all commandments? Jesus said, "It's to love God, right, with all your heart, all your soul." all your mind and all your strength. And so every time I'm sinning, and that's every moment, I'm also breaking the greatest of all commandments. Because when I'm sinning, I'm not loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? So my sins are infinite every moment of my life. Word, deed, thought, motive. My sins are infinite, but they're infinite upon infinite because when I'm sinning, which is every moment, I'm simultaneously breaking the greatest of all commandments. (laughs) So my sins are infinite upon infinite. And since it's the greatest of all commandments I'm breaking, I'm just multiplying my guilt. So my sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. And Edwards thought, and in light of fact, I've been raised in a minister's home. My grandfather was a minister. I have been given the word of God since my birth and, and all of these things God has blessed me with. And yet what do I do to repay him? Every moment of my life, in some sense, I rebel against him. Infinite upon infinite. As Edwards said, the more a true saint loves God, the more he mourns for sin. The closer I get to Christ, the more I understand the word of God, the more I understand all those things I just said. How great my sins are. And my sins are against an infinitely holy God, an infinitely great person. When David said in Psalm 51, oh, oh Lord, I've sinned against you and you alone. I can almost hear the prophet Nathan saying, "Um, excuse me, David, (laughs) may I remind you that of Uriah, you remember you had him put to death? You remember Bathsheba and the adultery? What do you mean you've sinned against God and God alone? To which I think David would say, you're right, you're right, Nathan. Yes, what I did against Uriah, what against Bathsheba, those are abominable. But Nathan, I have sinned against God. What is it that I've sinned against people if I've sinned against God? Our sins against one another are bad enough, but these are also sins against God. If I, if I took out a pistol and, and shot Ian, I'm in big trouble, right? I have broken the law. I'm in trouble for the rest of my life. But if I pull out a pistol and shoot the president of the United States, I'm in much bigger trouble than if I shoot Ian. right? Because president of the United States, in most cases, is considered more important than private citizen. And so I'm in, for the very same act, I'm in much bigger trouble for shooting the president than for shooting Ian. Folks, we have not just sinned against each other. We have sinned against the greatest person in the universe and done so an infinite number of times. And so the the more you love God, the more close you come to God, the the more you realize all of this. What does that lead to? Grieving over that. So the question now is, should I continually grieve over sin? A longtime friend of my wife and I sent an email in which she said, Is it good to always be so aware of my sin rather than focusing solely on the love and grace of God? After all, isn't isn't that counterproductive now that we have been forgiven? And if someone has a tendency to be overly introspective or easily discouraged, can't the frequent thought of your sinfulness push you too far toward guilt and gloom? Well, excessive introspection is a real possibility, and that itself is sinful. (laughs) That's sinful. But you know what? The spirit of our age doesn't incline people in that direction, does it? The spirit of the age doesn't incline people to go to extremes in brooding over sin, even at many churches. Religious entertainment we'd characterize the service there more than conviction of sin, right? Sermons are much more likely to be described as, as upbeat than heart-searching. They're more likely to produce laughter than tears. And this is in churches. And the culture at large certainly would not lead us to grieve over sin against God. So... There is a correct proportion to be assigned both to grieving over sin and the incomparable freedom of forgiveness He's given us through Christ. There is a proportion. And it's true that there are ministers and churches that dwell too much on sin and judgment and the wrath of God. And we stereotype that. We've all heard of, you know... I grew up with hellfire and damnation preaching, and people sometimes say, and there are there are churches like that. But a person who rightly dwells on all these things in the right proportion will still grieve over sin. That's still a biblical truth. As Edwards put it in his book, Religious Affections, one great difference between saints and hypocrites is this, that the joy and comfort of the former, the saints, is attended with godly sorrow and mourning for sin. So there are real Christians and there are hypocrites. And both profess some joy and comfort of forgiveness. But the difference is that real Christians also, with the proper joy and freedom of forgiveness, also will have godly sorrow and mourning over sin. Jesus taught this. He said, not only those who have mourned over sin, but those who are still characterized by mourning are blessed. He said in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn present tense blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted so that's not to say we are to mourn over sin every moment the bible doesn't teach that but it does mean we should grieve over sin all our lives paul is not described in the bible as every moment beating his chest all the time going around i'm the chief of sinners i'm the chief of sinners i'm the chief of sinners Good morning, Paul. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. Paul, we need you to preach to people right here now. Okay, I want to tell you all I'm the chief of sinners. No, that's not true. We're told, in fact, sometimes he's hanging on the wall, chained with Silas. What are they doing there in the jail? They're singing praise to God. That's, and he meant it. He wasn't in the jail morning. I'm the chief of sinners. That's why I'm here. I'm the chief of sinners. No, there's a proportionality. So, a part of the Christian experience, but always a part of the Christian experience for a lifetime is to grieve over sin. So it's not every moment, but it is a lifetime experience. There's a widely mistaken notion that repentance and faith are one-time experiences when we come to Christ. Okay, I've done that. Okay, repent and believe. Yeah, I did that. Check. But Christians are lifelong repenters, lifelong believers. What characterizes us in the first moment of conversion should characterize us for the rest of our lives. The first moments of repentance and faith should be a daily kind of experience, a moment-by-moment experience in one sense. So every moment we should be turning from sin, right? Repenting over sin. Every moment we should be looking to Christ and believing in Christ as our only hope for salvation. One of the most beloved English Puritans in the 17th century was Jeremiah Burroughs. His book on sin called The Evil of Evils. He said, there's a great mistake in the world in the matter of trouble for sin. They think repentance or mourning for sin is but one act. That if once they have been troubled for sin, they need never be troubled anymore. It is a dangerous mistake. For we need to know that true sorrow for sin, true repentance is a continual act that must abide all our lives. And it is not only at the time we, when we are afraid that God will not pardon our sins, when we are afraid that we shall be damned for our sins, but when we come to hope that God will, yes, when we come to know that God has pardoned our sins. So we know God has pardoned our sins, but that doesn't make us content to live with sin. God has pardoned my sins. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, oh! I long for the day when there's no sin in my life. I hate the sin in my life. But I can't escape it in this world. Those go hand in hand. The full freedom of forgiveness and the joy that comes with that, but also in the same heart is a grief over sin. So since we are always looking afresh to Christ, always turning from sin, it follows, therefore, we would be always grieving from sin, right? If indeed we are lifelong repenters, that's not just a mechanical act. Lifelong repentance implies lifelong grief over sin. So, you know, asking God's forgiveness, confessing our sins... It's not not just mechanical, is it? That would become heartless. God forbid that. So, lifelong repentance implies some lifelong grief over sin. So, let's think now about the right way and the wrong way to grieve over sin. The right way and the wrong way. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 11, is the classic passage on this. The Bible juxtaposes here two kinds of sorrow for sin there's a wrong kind of sorrow for sin like Esau, and there's a right kind of sorrow for sin, godly sorrow. So the passage contrasts godly sorrow with a kind of worldly sorrow. One leads to salvation, the other leads to condemnation. So You know what the point of that is? Even an unbeliever can have some sense of sorrow for sin, like Esau. So they, they grieve, but not in a way of, of repentance and the fruit of repentance. Godly repentance leads to eternal life, and that involves grief over that sin. But godly sorrow is much more than just admitting your imperfections. I don't know anyone who, who doesn't do that. I've never met anyone who says, Well, I am perfect. But I've met very few who are brokenhearted because they know that every moment they're sinners who are breaking the law of God. In other words, godly sorrow for, for sin, which 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8-11 through uses, that term godly sorrow does involve sorrow. Right? <laughs> To have what Second Corinthians 7 approves means there's real sorrow. For a lifetime, there is real sorrow over sin. That, and a person who acknowledges that, the more they recognize that, that's spiritually healthy. That, that is growing in grace. To realize I am a nonstop offender against the law of God. And our confession, our repentance, shouldn't be just like that of a, of, a, of a boy who's been forced to say, I'm sorry for hitting his sister, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not the way we say I'm sorry to God. To say I'm sorry to God means we, we are sorry, we grieve, there is sorrow. Godly sorrow for sin does involve sorrow. Sorrow. And it results in repentance, a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. Paul said to these people in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9, I rejoice not that you were made sorry only for sin. I didn't just want to make you feel guilty. That wasn't the point. I I rejoice not that you were made sorry only, we might add, but that your sorrow led to repentance. And that's contrasted with Esau when he realized that his He had lost his birthright. We're told in Hebrews 12, 17, he could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. He wept before God (coughs) about losing the blessing, but it didn't lead to a change of life. There are people who may weep before God because of the consequences of their sin. It doesn't produce repentance. That's the difference. There's also, in true sorrow over sin, a humility. True humility characterizes godly sorrow. Edwards reflects on how some who use the most self-effacing language are actually hypocritical in this regard. Some of those who describe how sinful they are may be actually demonstrating their, their, their pride. I am a poor, vile sinner, they may say. I am not worthy of the least mercy, or that God should look upon me. Oh, I have a dreadful, wicked heart. My heart is worse than the devil. Oh, this cursed heart of mine, and so forth. Such experiences, Edward says, are often used not with a heart that is broken. There are many that are full of expressions of their own vileness, who yet expect to be looked upon as eminent and bright saints of others. others as as the result in other words oh i'm such a terrible sinner and they kind of open one eye to look around who's who's impressed by that
1: oh look how
0: humble they are oh look how godly they are because they are so self-effacing about their sin now there's a real humility in people who have the right kind of sorrow for sin the kind of godly sorrow that growing christians have makes them a thousand times more aware of their pride than their humility there is a true humility that others can perceive but the truly humble feel a thousand times more aware of how prideful they are they're not humble enough If others say anything about their humility, they only, they only makes them realize, oh, if you knew me, you'd know how prideful I really am. Because they know that to be true. We, we grieve because we feel ourselves, like, like the Apostle Paul, less than the least of all saints. That's Ephesians 3.8. That's Paul in Ephesians 3.8. Paul didn't feel himself to be a great Christian at all. I, he said, I'm the least of all saints. I'm the least of the apostles, and I'm the least of all saints. I'm the chief of sinners. Over and over he said things like that. And he really meant it. It wasn't just for effect. He really meant it. It wasn't like the Pharisee, you know, who pridefully said, I thank you. I'm not as other men, but rather like the man who beat his breast standing far off saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said that's the one who was justified before God. The one who felt the weight of his sin and who knew not that he wasn't just perfect. He knew it was sin against God. My sin is against God. I've broken the law of God. Yes, I've sinned against others. But my biggest problem is that I am a sinner against God. He's blessed me with so much. How have I repaid him? With just unending sin. And one other in godly sorrow, there's a measure of, of gentle sweetness. The, the sorrow of pining for what will be. <sighs> that I grieve over sin because I know what holiness is. I have some, some idea of what holiness is, and I long for that. That I'm not there yet. Yet. Just like Paul, who said, I'm the chief of sinners. I've seen what pure holiness is. I've been to heaven, and I'm not that. Not yet. Oh, but it's coming. I want that so much. So there's that, that admixture of sweetness and longing in the grief. It's not just I'm so bad, I'm so bad, I'm a vile sinner, I'm I'm the chief of sinners, I'm terrible, I'm bad, I'm awful. It's, there's, there's an awareness, there's a holiness coming. And my grief is not just of the sin in this sin factory that beats in my chest, and I wish I could rip it out and throw it away, but I can't. It's not just that. It's a, there's something so much better, and I know it's coming, and it's not here yet. And I long for that. There's a day coming without sin, and I so want that. And that saddens me in one sense because it's not here yet, But there's a longing and a hope in that. Do you see that? The sweetness in that. We're going to see a little more of this tomorrow in a very encouraging kind of way. Paul writes about this in Romans 8, 23. Those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we have the, the Holy Spirit in us that causes us to prize holiness. It says we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. It's coming, I know it's coming, and the Holy Spirit gives me a hope of that, and a picture of, in a sense, through Scripture, what that's like. And, oh, I ache for that. I don't have that yet. What I have is still this sin factory in my chest. That's part of my grief. You see that? It's not just, I'm so bad, I'm so terrible. It's a grief For what I don't yet have that I want. I have an appetite for pure holiness. I want to be in a body without sin anymore. I want to have a mind that's no longer drawn to temptation ever again. I don't have that now. That's part of my grief. That's part of my godly sorrow. I want a thoroughly holy heart and a holy mind and a holy body. And to see a holy God in a holy world. And I know it's coming and I don't have that yet. And I ache for it i grieve that that's not where i am right now that's not what i am right now that's part of it so then what do we do what should we do if we don't grieve for sin as we believe we ought john owen the greatest of the puritan theologians said I do not understand how a man can be a true believer in whom sin is not the greatest burden, sorrow, and trouble. If you're not sure that's you, then I've got some suggestions. <laughs> how can anyone be a Christian when sin is not your greatest burden? Oh, if I could just, <laughs> I, I want to be changed. Lord, change me right now. Change me forever right Now. I hate sin. I hate for what it's done to me, what it does to me, what it does to my relationship with you. I hate sin. And yet, I'll turn around and willingly sin. Very soon, I willingly sin. I sin all the time, and I don't even know about it sometimes. But there are moments when I, cho- I know that I'm choosing sin. Someone who claims to be a follower of Christ, I love you above everything. I want you more than anything. And the same person who says that, then I will willingly choose sin. Oh, I hate that. Change me, Lord. I don't want to be this way. I really do hate sin. I really do want you more than sin. And that I'll be such a hypocrite. I'll turn around and choose sin. I don't want to be that way anymore. Lord, change me. Change me right now. There is a promise change that is coming that you say you'll give me a new body. I'll be made like Christ, not like him in his divinity. I won't be a God. I will be like him in his sinless, perfect humanity. I'll never sin again. I'll never want to sin again. Lord, I want that now. And I want that because you made me want that. Your spirit gives me that longing. I wouldn't naturally be that way. I want all of that now. I know it's coming someday. Lord, if you would do it right now, I'd be the happiest person in the world. Make me that way right now. John Owen says, if you're not that way, I don't understand how you can be a Christian. So what do we do? We're not sure that our experience resonates with Owen, there. First, maybe one of the most important things I can say while I'm here, make sure you are clear on the gospel. And my experience is far fewer people are clear on the gospel than they think they are. Sometimes this is a way I illustrate that. And if I we're in a setting ahead of time. Here's what I would do. I would give everyone a sheet of paper. <clears throat> and then I would say, um, all of you profess to be Christians, right? Yeah. Okay. H- how, many, how many times do you think you've heard the gospel in your life? And those who've been raised in church might roll their eyes and say, oh, God, I've probably heard the gospel thousands of times. Good. Good. Write it down for me, would you? And everyone freezes. I've done this so many times. It's always the same. Everybody freezes. Wait a minute. You just told me you're Christians, right? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Now, to be a Christian, you have to hear the gospel and understand it at least minimally so you can believe it, right? You can't believe it if you don't have any understanding of the gospel, any exposure. So you were exposed to the gospel, and you understood it enough to believe it and become a Christian, right? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, and and you've heard it thousands of times. You just said so, right? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, Just in a paragraph, write that message down. What is the message apart from which you will not go to heaven? It's more important than any computer password. It's more important than any identification number, anything else. You won't go to heaven if you don't believe this message. And you won't believe it if you don't know what it is. So what is it? It is the main message of the church. And you've been in church all these years. By your own admission, you've heard it countless times. And it's a simple message. What is it? you're going home today and as you're driving home in the bad weather you see there's an accident terrible accident cars rolled into the ditch you pull over you run down there people are thrown from the vehicle their chest is heaving and you realize oh my goodness they'll be dead before the ambulance gets here and with their chest heaving they grab you and pull you close and say i don't want to go to hell what do i do all right there eternity is in the balance there what do you tell them it's too late to tell them to come to church Too late to tell them to live a good life. What do you tell them? It's the same message by which you must believe to go to heaven. My experience is some of our most faithful church members aren't clear on that message. If you have been through the experience of salvation, you should be able to to describe the message that precedes it, right? I, I am, I'm sure, the least mechanical guy in the room. But if I said to you, you know, uh, there's there's a there's a door back here, and there there's a little plate behind the doorknob, and in each corner of that metal plate, there was a there the circle, and each one of those circles has had a slot in it, and I, I looked around, I found this metal rod that was pressed flat on one end and had a clear yellow handle on the other end and i took the 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 part that was pressed flat of that metal rod and i stuck it in one of those slots and i turned that yellow handle and these little curly q looking things came back and out of there when i did that on all four of them the doorknob came off now you understood exactly what happened right I didn't know any of the correct language. I didn't know any of the technical terms like screwdriver. (laughs) But I adequately communicated the message, didn't I? You fully understood, though I didn't know much technical language. How could I describe accurately the experience? Because I have been through it. I may not be the best trained, most mechanically minded person to tell you all the physics of it. I didn't know all the terms. But I could adequately explain it because I've been through it. If you have been through the experience of salvation, what is the message? Wh- what did you believe that took you through the experience? That is the message, our basic message. In one word, the message is Jesus. In a phrase, the gospel is the person and the work of Jesus. Who Jesus is, what he did. In a longer sense, it's what I said earlier, that God made everything, including you, and therefore he has all rights over you. He has the right, therefore, to tell you how to live, and he's done so in his word, in his law. But you broke it, and you did it countless times. And so you are accountable to this holy God, and someday you will stand before him as judge because he has a day of judgment. There is a heaven. There is a hell. But God knew you were guilty and could do nothing about it on your own, so he, he sent Jesus in his love and mercy. And Jesus lived the life you couldn't live, and Jesus, by his life, never sinning, always keeping the law of God, he earned heaven. But that qualified him to be a substitute for lawbreakers. He willingly offered himself as such on the cross. And God accepted his substitute on behalf of others because we know that God raised him from the dead and ascended him to heaven. And someday he's going to return to be judge over all. And before that time, you need to repent and believe in Jesus as your only hope of making it to heaven because your life will not impress God enough to get you into heaven. In a one minute version that's the gospel and I think it's good to have that one sentence version that elevator pitch version to use that term and then of course we can elongate the gospel we can talk about it hours on end explaining the nuances of the gospel so what do you do if you don't grieve over sin first thing be clear on the gospel I think that's that's why I said this may be the most important thing I'll say clarity on the gospel that's the main message of the church and if we don't know what the main message is uh, i mean there are a number of problems there right so if you don't grieve over sin if god just you know god is love and he accepts me the way i am and so forth. you never grieve over sin you need to understand the gospel because gospel means a perfect god had to send his perfect son to die because of your sin Second, ask God to show you the reality of your sin. Ask Him to show you the specifics of your sin, when you sin, where you sin, why you sin, against whom you sin. Ask Him to show you the reality of your sin. Third, pray slowly through Psalm 51, classic biblical expression of confession of sin. These aren't just the words of David. God inspired David to pray these particular words, and God has preserved them for 4,000 years because it is a wonderful, truthful expression of sin and confession to God. So pray over them until they become a reflection of your own heart. Fourth... What do you do if you don't grieve over sin? Meditate on the fact that it was your sin that killed Jesus. Are you never sorrowful for causing the death of Jesus? Think of what your sin cost the most pure, loving, and gracious one who ever lived. Consider the fact that there are countless millions in hell right now for the same sins you commit. It's God's eternal law that you have willingly, repeatedly broken and disregarded that your every sin is a double sin because whenever you sin, which is every moment, you're breaking the greatest of all commandments. then remember that the life and death of Jesus pays for every sin of those who believe. That there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But may the the awareness of your sin only drive you to Christ. May the greatness of the awareness of your sins be matched by the greatness of the love and mercy of God in Christ and His forgiveness. God did not send Jesus just to make us feel guilty for our sin. His goal was for us to soar in the freedom of the forgiveness of the children of God. But the the good news of the gospel is good news only if you're aware of the bad news. If I say... Ian, I saw your wife during the break. Well, good. (laughs) Good for you. It's good news. But if his wife has been missing for the past month and no one knows why or where she was, and I tell him I just saw his wife, he's been fearful she's been murdered, you know, a million things go through his mind every moment for a month, and I say, I saw your wife during the break, that now is really good news, right? Same message, why is it really good news? Because of the bad news. That's why we should grieve over our sin. Because the good news of Jesus is, is much highly valued, much more treasured, much more good news when we realize the truth of the bad news. May your sin only serve to cause you to prize Christ even more. See, the awareness of your sin can either become a wedge between you and God or drive you closer to Christ. The goal of being aware of your sin is not to make you feel more guilty. I'm the chief of sinners, so God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I back away, I turn away. No, that's the wrong reaction. It should drive us only closer to Christ. Oh God, I am such a sinner, please, I need Jesus. Jesus. Oh, Jesus, thank you for coming for sinners like me because I need you more than I need anything. Oh, thank you, Jesus, you would die for a sinner like me. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Which of the two brothers is most aware of his sin? It was the prodigal, not the older brother, right? And the father ran to him because he realized his sin that's what should be our awareness not how bad we are but there's a righteousness of god that we love and prize i I remember pastoring in the chicago area there was a young woman who almost after every service she'd want to talk because she's just so so aware of her sin and we would sit on the front row together and she would talk and she would there was this I remember her arms being twisted like this. She would say, I'm just not sure I've repented enough. I'm not sure if I've grieved enough and I've believed enough. There is actually, there is this, there is an excessive introspection about sin that actually becomes in a kind of a twisted way, a self-centeredness. She was looking always at her sin and not enough as what Hebrews says, fixing her eyes on Jesus. And so the person who is always scouring their soul, looking for something, that's not the goal. Once we are aware of our sin, the depth of it, that should drive us to Christ and cause us to prize and treasure Jesus all the more. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus, not to fix our eyes on our sin. We are to grieve over it whenever we're aware of it, but it should cause us to focus our eyes on Jesus. Jesus. And I finally said to that young woman, I said, oh, if you're going to go to hell, go to hell looking to Jesus. If you try to say, have I believed enough? Have I repented enough? You'll, you'll always find some reason to believe you haven't. You scour your soul like that, you'll always find something. You can always dredge up something. But if, if your focus is always on yourself, that is, that's out of proportion. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus, we're to glance at our sin. We're to feel the depth of it, but we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. Not to look to ourselves, have I done enough? Because you'll never do enough. And then lastly, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. A phrase I borrowed from Jerry Bridges who developed it from Martin Luther. The late Jerry Bridges who talked about preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. He said to preach the gospel to yourself then means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness. And then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. It means that you appropriate again by faith the fact that Jesus satisfied the law of God, that he is your propitiation, that God's holy wrath is no longer directed toward you. You can be sure of one thing, though. When you set yourself to seriously pursue holiness, you will begin to realize what an awful sinner you are. And if you are not firmly rooted in the gospel and have not learned to preach it to yourself every day, you will soon become discouraged and will slack off in your pursuit of holiness. That's not what we want. This has been directed toward people who seem to be careless toward sin. Oh yeah, I've repented, I've ever believed. I did that years ago. And sin is not a big deal to them anymore. It was a big deal to the holiest man who ever lived, the apostle Paul. It was a big deal to Edwards. It's a big deal to every Christian. But the goal is not for God to have us grovel through life. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. No, it's the glory in Christ. But we prize him to the degree that we realize our need for him. Now, there are two ways of measuring your spiritual health, your growth in godliness. One is looking backward. One is looking forward? To look forward means I am not where I ought to be. Oh, I want holiness and I'm not there. I'm so far. In fact, the closer I get to Christ, it seems the, the farther away I am. The more I realize how impossible holiness is and I'll never make it. And I'm, I'm more evil than I ever imagined. I'm not what I ought to be. That's one level. That's one way of measuring where you are spiritually but that's not the only way but to look back and say i am not what i ought to be but thank god i'm not what i used to be god has worked in my life he has brought me by grace to this point i'm not what i used to be he has changed me he has brought me thus far by faith oh i'm not what i ought to be we need that look But it's helpful to look back and say, I'm not what I used to be. We need both of those. The growing Christian needs times of both every day, really. Preach the gospel to yourself, like Jerry Bridges illustrated. It's like two wings of an airplane, the law and the gospel, the law and the gospel. Every time, every day, I need to hear the Holy Spirit say to me, that's sin. That's a sinful thought. That's a sinful action. You've broken the law of God when you've done that. You need to repent. I need that every day. But I also need the fact Jesus died for that sin. God will forgive any sin that we confess. He has mercy to the heavens. And to remember the glories of the gospel. I need that many times every day too. The plane of spiritual growth needs both wings. The law and the gospel. The warnings, the threatenings. Warnings about sin, but the greatness and glory of Christ in the gospel.